Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, let me speak to the governor. Governor Gary Herbert spends one hour answering your questions. Call 801-575-8255. Live from the studios of KSL News Radio in Salt Lake City, it's Let Me Speak to the Governor. Now, normally on Let Me Speak to the Governor, we have Maria Chaleos here, but I have been asked to fill in today, and it's a great honor. And Governor, I feel like we have the band back together. We did this for years and years and years. Yes, the king is back. Oh, the king is back. (laughs) Well, I I have to tell you who's really the king, because here in our new hermetically sealed studios, we are required to have non-spillable little kind of sippy cups. You know, it's kind of the adult version of what our kids... They're quite nice, in fact. But... I've been here 42 years, Governor, and my name is not on my water bottle, but yours is embossed. (laughs) It says Gary R. Herbert, Governor of Utah. That's pretty cool. Well, yours is the universal jug. Anybody can drink out of yours. (laughs) But yours is exclusive. Yeah, Governor, it really is a great pleasure to have you here. It's It's a wonderful opportunity. For the folks in the state of Utah, our KSL listeners and, you know, people who join us maybe only once a month for this very event to chat with you in person on the phone line. And so the area code is 801 and it's KSL Talk 575-8255. We'd love to have you call in and have an opportunity to chat live with the governor of our great state. And both of us, as we were chatting just prior to going on the air, boy, the coronavirus is a hot topic right now. President Trump says as a nation, and this is a direct quote, we're very ready. And he's put your friend, Mike Pence, in charge of uh, making sure the country is prepared. Uh, you have a statement or some thoughts well, on Well, let me Utah. just say, as I'm looking around your studio here and, and the different TV stations, I mean, everybody's talking about the coronavirus and the issue and a lot of questions being asked and concerns about the potential of a pandemic. Uh, and are we ready? Uh, again, I think the president's trying to thread the needle by uh, saying we're ready. Mm-hmm. and not to oversell the problem, and yet at the same time not to create any kind of panic by saying this is, you know, the sky is falling kind of a mentality. But there are a lot of questions, and, and so I've done my own work here. We've been working for the last uh, week and a half to make sure that we're doing all we need to do and can do. So I talked to Dr. Miner, uh, who's the director of our health department for the state, works with all of our local health departments, which are in every county, to see if we are ready and if we're doing all we can be doing, and, and we are. There'll be a press conference later t- this afternoon about one thirty at the Department of Health with the hospitals and others involved in this uh, issue to kind of give specifics and details and what we can do. But what I can tell you, Doug, is that um, 
we uh, understand the coronavirus is actually called uh, uh, COVID-19, mm-hmm. COVID-19. It's, uh, we've had coronaviruses in the past. We have the more common flus, the colds. And we've learned, you know, over time what, what to do. And some of it's just common sense. Wash your hands. You know, don't uh, be around people who are sneezing or coughing. And right. you get into your nose, your eyes, you can get infected. This particular uh, virus is very um, easy to spread. It's very infectious. It's easy to catch it. Uh, that's the bad news. Uh, the good news of it is that it's about 80% of those who catch it has a very mild form of a flu. It's like a flu. It's, you might just be tired, uh, maybe a little achy, but just pretty mild. Uh, 15% have a more moderate form, just like a traditional flu. And the, and the worry is that 5% have a very significant, severe form. Mm-hmm. And that's where we end up having more deaths. Uh, for 50 years and old, Older, it depends on what your health situation may be, but that's where it seems to be attacking, not necessarily the young people, um, but 50 years and middle age and, and older. Um, all of our agencies are on alert. Uh, our Department of Health has a conference call every day or every other day with the national organizations, the federal government, other health care specialists, as we are actively monitoring what's taking place and, and bringing all of our agencies to bear so that we're, we're, everybody knows what their role is going to be and, and what their role is to, to do. Bottom line on all this is that uh, we are very concerned about the potential we want to slow the spread. That means we ought to take care of ourselves, and if we have symptoms, we ought to self-isolate. Don't go out. Right, in public, right. avoid those who are coughing and sneezing, and those who are coughing and sneezing, not avoid the public. Uh, we've talked about maybe bringing back the old elbow bump. You know, oh, when, that's right. When we had the SARS pandemic, you know, we ended up not shaking hands because you can catch it by just touching surfaces and having the virus get on your hands, and then you uh, touch your face uh, and and get sick. So the the elbow bump maybe is a good thing for us to do until we get our hands on. On this and the, my doctor, by the way, does that routinely. You know, you walk in, you, I don't shake hands with King anymore. You know, we just yeah. do the elbow bump or the fist bump. Well, he's got so many people in there sick. Yeah, that's, so that's right. probably a, a good that's thing right. to do. Or maybe he's just making a statement on me. I'm not sure. <laughs> maybe. But some of it is just common sense. Again, we. I, I guess I would sum it up by saying this. We are hoping for the best. We hope this is just a little blip on the radar uh, that it won't infect America, it won't come to Utah. We hope that there's going to be minimal disruption here. But we are preparing for the worst. And so just rest assured the state of Utah is going to do everything it can do and be prepared. We'll work with the federal government. I'm not relying on the federal government, though. I can tell you that's the last place you want to rely on. But I am relying upon the people here in the state of Utah. Uh, we'll find solutions, our local health department, our medical profession, our doctors, hospitals. We'll do what needs to be done here. We're going to be very prepared. Uh, we're going to take phone calls in, in a moment, but there is something else that I, I wanted to particularly, and I know you want to talk about this too, but uh, I, I know for Republicans, I think in particular, it has been a real challenge. It's been a real frustration. The ongoing battle now over SB 54, and it's continued into this legislative session, the uh, Central Committee of the Republican Party has had perpetual heartburn over this. This was an ultimate compromise that was put together by Senator Kurt Bramble, and mm-hmm. everybody kind of got together. Uh, you know, it, it just seems to never go away, this alternative route to getting on the ballot. 
What are your thoughts on this, Governor, and where is this going? Well, you know, I guess we all wished we'd never heard of it. <laughs> but, uh, uh, again, people have difference of opinion on what's the best method to nominate people. And, uh, you know, we have our own uh, caucus convention system, which has served us very well for many, many years. And so, uh, it's you know, it's the only thing I've ever known. Um but it's become it's becoming abused. People are spending a lot of money just stacking the delegates, and delegates were not representing their neighborhoods. And so it became concerns. It was a little more extreme there and, uh, and what the general population of Republicans, for example, were. That being said, I do believe in good faith. The legislature, working with the countwide vault folks, came up with a compromise in exchange for them withdrawing their initiative petition, which right. has gone just to a general primary. And so the compromise was designed to protect and keep the caucus convention system as a viable part of the process. Uh, you can do that only. Uh, you could do signatures only. Or most people are doing both. They're still making the caucus important, the convention important. Uh, Senator Dan McKay has introduced another uh, layer of the controversy by saying, well, we're going to give more options for parties to choose. And, of course, that allows the party to avoid having uh, to deal with Senate Bill 54. They, they've always said we're going to go through the court process, which I supported, and let's see what the courts tell us. The courts have determined that it is, in fact, constitutional, the dual pathway, and doesn't infringe on people's rights. Uh, but that has not been enough for some. They want to continue to do something. And Senator uh, McKay is right when he said, we're just tired of the fighting. Yeah, yeah. And so he's got this alternative out there, which I don't think really resolves the issue, but the fight continues. And so what I'd like to see happen uh, is why don't the legislature bring forward to us a resolution to put on the ballot in the upcoming November election and have the people speak Mm -hmm. and say, do you want to keep the dual pathway? Uh, If you say yes, we'll keep it. If you say no, we'll we'll, uh, take it away and go back to the caucus convention system. I mean, why would we not want to have the people to weigh on this? I just think that's a way to resolve the fighting once and for all and let the will of the people be heard and then have the legislature react accordingly. It's been so interesting to observe this, and we'll take a break here in a moment, then we'll come back. And phone lines are open for our listeners at 801-575-8255. But it's been interesting because this has caused some real division within the Republican Party and, and elsewhere. And and I think of a race that you had not all that long ago. And, you know, the popularity ratings, your approval ratings were, you know, very high. And But yet if somebody had looked at the uh, output after the convention, the same thing with Congressman Curtis. Uh, he is quite fond of going up to a board and drawing the number 11 percent. That's what he got in the convention. But yet he beat his opponent by mm-hmm. 40 points, as you did as well. And anybody who had looked at the convention would have went, boy, we have a governor in trouble, and this guy will never become a congressman. And it was exactly the opposite. Well, people are passionate about the process. And I understand that, and and I think that's a healthy discussion and debate. What we ought to be having under a republic, it's a democratic republic, we vote for representatives to represent us. And, you know, I went to convention. I would have have been in the primary regardless of signatures or not. Uh, and so the, uh, we've always had uh, the idea that if we can't reach some kind of a threshold in a convention, it used to be 70%, they reduced it down to 60 The count my vote people were willing to go back to 70 but that was rejected by the state central committee right. twice. And so 
that they lost maybe an opportunity there, I think, to resolve it. That being the case, people care about the process. But it's hard to argue against having the will of the people be heard. And uh, with early voting, vote by mail, uh, the information is a lot easier now for the general population to understand who the candidates are, what their positions are, what they stand for, what they're going to try to accomplish if elected. What are the bond issues, you know? What are the other right. things that are on the ballot? You can actually do a lot of research now that was a little harder to get in the past. So I think we have an informed electorate. I think it's a little bit of elitist to say, well, only the delegates know best. That's probably not correct. Uh, and sometimes we've seen many mistakes made. Uh, you know, we've we've had uh, different issues that I won't take time to go through here where the delegates really missed it. Mm-hmm. And they had to be, have some corrective action. I remember once we had a, a chairman of a Democrat party that ran as a Republican after just changing his party affiliation 30 days before. Yeah. And guess what? The people liked him and he yeah. got voted in. So, I mean, the delegates don't always, you know, follow a, a, a clear pathway that people say, oh, that's pure. And, and so I just trust the will of the people and the voices of the people. And I think we ought to... to uh, Give them the opportunity. That being said, this is about process. And if the people like the dual pathway, then have them vote to keep it. If they don't want if they want to go right. back to the original caucus convention only system, I'm fine with that too. But let's let the people vote and say and not have the shrill voices on either side yeah. be the, the ones that sway the day. Let's let the people weigh in on it. It's let me speak to the governor, an opportunity for you to chat with the governor of the great state of Utah, Gary Herbert, here in studio with us. Let's take a break and we'll come right back. The number to call is 801-575-8255. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. What's your question for Governor Herbert? Call 801-575-8255. This is Let Me Speak to the Governor. We would love to chat with you. The governor would love to chat with you. And the area code is 801. It's 575-8255. I'm Doug Wright. Governor Gary Herbert is here. Um, Let me speak to the governor to chat with you. And uh, let's go to James, who's on the line in Provo, Utah. James, you're on KSL. Well, good afternoon, Doug, and good afternoon, Governor Herbert. Good afternoon, James. Anyhow, basically, I noticed a few days ago you proposed a, a good idea, and I share uh, parts of it. I think you proposed a revamp presidential primary system to kind of take the onus off of things like uh, Iowa and New Hampshire, and I totally agree. I, if I get your idea right, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you were suggesting quadrants of the nation maybe split up into one force and alternate geographically so each stake of the country would alternate and have an equal share instead of one or two states uh, starting off the process. Yeah, Governor, what what is your plan on that? Yeah, James, thank you. Just coincidentally, Doug and I were just talking about that during the break. And clearly, as we've seen the fiasco that's happened, particularly in Iowa, with their caucus uh, system there, and still I don't think we've even got the final results today yet. Uh, and why do we go to Iowa first? 
Yeah. I mean, Iowa likes it because they make about $50 million of economic advantage of that, maybe more now. And don't they have to call it a caucus so they can leapfrog New Hampshire, who has some granddaddy yeah. deal and, out there? And they've passed laws now that say if anybody moves their date up, they have to be a week earlier. They'll, <laughs> they'll go into the last year yeah. if they need to, to stay first in the nation. And that may be good for Iowa, but it's not good for the country. Same with New Hampshire. Why are they second? Why do we go to Nevada? Uh, we've had concerns about the, the, the whole system. They don't reflect necessarily the country, and they get a chance to go first. And what's bad about that, we're going to have South Carolina coming up here this weekend. But when they finish up uh, and we'll have Super Tuesday, uh, most all the candidates will be gone. And most of the states and the people have not even had a chance yet to weigh in and vote. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, the system is just flawed. It's it's not developing, producing the best candidates, I don't think. So the rotating regional primaries is, as James has suggested, I've, I've proposed we cut the country into quarters, 25%, based on population and geography, north, south, east, and west, as it were. And you could start in April, pick your own four months, but you'd have a, a one month to concentrate on one area, uh, April, and then in May you concentrate on another geographic area, June, July. You could have it done by the end of the summer. Have a Super Tuesday for each uh, month and let the states vote. Everybody could last, and you would get a consensus candidate who would actually bubble up to the top right. and be probably one that everybody in America would feel good about. It's less expensive. We can concentrate our time in a four- or five-month period of, of time so that we, the people, know and can vote. And it would just be fair, and everybody would have their voice to be heard as they vote, and we would get better candidates. I just think it's a, an idea It's time has come. You've had some fairly high-level conversations and bounced this idea off of some very notable uh, individuals in politics. They all seem to like it. What would it actually take, Governor, to make this happen? It takes the will of the political parties, in fact, to embrace it and do it. Some of the candidates don't like it because they've built their candidacy on the old system. Uh, you've got to fight with uh, some of the states for saying, hey, well, I, I was never going to agree to this. New Hampshire's never gonna, going to agree <laughs> to it because it's in their best interest. We've got to, though, find out what's in the best interest of the country. What's in the best interest of getting the best nominees, uh, the best people to run for the highest office in the land? And uh, unfortunately, we're getting more and more to where the only the rich need apply. And doesn't matter what the system is, the wealthy always do have an advantage. I don't think there's any perfect system, but I think regional rotating primaries where some part of the country goes first and we rotate it. So we're not always right. in the West. We're not always in Iowa. We're not always in the, in the South. Everybody would have a chance every four years and we'd rotate it regionally, but a four-month period of time, a block, a, a regional area, uh, candidates could last. Uh, we'd have an opportunity to hear them all, and everybody in the country would have a chance to weigh in by voting and making a difference in the outcome. Let's take a phone call from Clearfield now, and I believe we have Carice, who is on the line. Welcome to the program. Yeah, hi. How you doing? And um, thank you for your leadership, Governor. I've admired you for a while now. Thank you, Carice. Um, so my question has to do with um, black entrepreneurship in the state of Utah right now. Um, currently, um, a new ranking came out from Fit Small Business that ranked us 33 in the nation for black entrepreneurship opportunities. But with ranking, we are ranked 49th according to U.S. News Inequality and 21st according to Wallethood and Racial Integration. 
how can we increase our rankings so we can make sure our economic development opportunities are robust for all? And what advice would you give the next incoming governor on this subject? Well, thank you very much. For, that's a great question. Uh, I can tell you that the marketplace is really colorblind. And so whoever's making the widgets, providing services that are received, you know, we don't even know who probably when to go buy a TV set. We don't know who worked on it, who's doing what or where. Uh, we don't know who started the business. And so at least in a, in a free market situation we have called capitalism, it pretty well is colorblind. Some of the reasons we have uh, for probably shortages there is a lack of awareness of opportunity, lack of capital investment, uh, educational shortfalls, uh, the fact that people are, uh, you know, ambitious in one area, uh, maybe means they're not ambitious in another area. For example, I was with a, a fellow who started what's called FIRST, which is a robotic competition around the country. It's in every state now. We have it coming up here, I think, here in a couple of weeks in Utah. And he said, we've been too involved, he said, as a society in sports. We recognize our athletes. We hero worship rock stars, you know, music uh, certainly is another area, Hollywood stars. But how about people that are engineers and scientists? Those people that make uh, in this robotic competition is what he's saying. Let's go honor these young people for their successes. And so I think it's a matter of promoting making sure that we have equal opportunity and making sure that everybody knows there is opportunity out there and, and you got to consider it. So promotion, we have a black chamber of commerce, for example, uh, which is helping to promote entrepreneurship with the African-American community. We have an Asian uh, chamber of commerce, which is helping, uh, uh, you know, promote those involved with uh, uh, ethnicity of Asian descent. Those are promotions where people are inspired and we need to put those who are minorities on display. I don't know if that's the right terminology, but as good examples to others to say, look, I can become like that person. They look like me, and they're successful in business as an entrepreneur. I want to do that. So there's probably a number of ways we can address that. Your issue is very important to me and and certainly to the success of our state. We're becoming much more diverse now than ever before. And we want to make sure that uh, there's equal opportunity in our society really is colorblind when it comes to picking winners and losers. It's 1229 right now. We'll take a brief break here at the bottom of the hour. We will come right back with Governor Gary Herbert. Let me speak to the governor on the air here at KSL. And Jamie, we know you're waiting next out there in Clearfield. We'll ask you to hang in with us through the break. We'll take your uh, phone call next on Let Me Speak to the Governor here at KSL News Radio. Today. Let me speak to the governor. Governor Gary Herbert spends one hour answering your questions. Call 801-575-8255. Live from the studios of KSL News Radio in Salt Lake City, it's Let Me Speak to the Governor. And the phone number on Let Me Speak to the Governor is area code 801-575-8255. We always love to hear from you. And as I promised, uh, Jamie is waiting on the line in Clearfield. And Jamie, go ahead. Hello. Thank you, Governor, for your service. Well, thank you, I Jamie. I am an unaffiliated voter, and I'm a little concerned. I like I like what I'm hearing you talk about as far as putting maybe a ballot initiative and allowing voters to decide any changes to our current process without voting. Um but I don't have a lot of faith in our legislature. I, I did vote, 
last year and the two initiatives that I supported with medical marijuana and Medicaid expansion, I, I don't feel like our legislature has addressed the will of the people. So can you give me some insight on what would be different with this um, voter initiative? Well, the initiative really would be simple, so it's kind of a yes or no question. So it's do we keep the dual pathway that we have in in statute today, uh, which seems the the people have kind of embraced. More people have an opportunity to participate and vote. Uh, it gives you more selection. Uh, do you want to keep this uh, uh, that we have now in statute called Senate Bill 54, which was the compromise that happened back in 2014, and everyone's still fighting over it. So, um, and it's been more of a Republican issue, I think, than anything else. But the vote would the initiative would say, do you want to keep it? Say vote yes, and if you don't want to keep it, vote no. And so there's not much can be, you know, the legislature's not going to mess that up. That's just a matter of okay, the people want to keep it, we'll leave it the way it is. If they want to repeal it, we'll just repeal that out of the statute, and whatever the ramifications of that are going forward are. But uh, on the other initiatives, you know the the Medicaid, for example. Uh, a little slow to come together, as you re- maybe recall. I, pro- I I proposed a healthy Utah was what we called it, which was a way to intact, take the Medicaid expansion dollars and spend that more in the private sector. We thought a better way to do it make some modifications on copays and emergency room visits, but a way to spend the money in a more effective way with more flexibility given to the state. The Senate approved that in the legislature, but the House didn't, in fact, didn't even allow it to be debated. And so that didn't happen. And so over the next number of years, we've spent uh, close to $4 billion of what we received under the Affordable Care Act as new taxes. So we had the pain of the tax, but not the benefit of the health care. That being said, the public uh, rose up and said, hey, we're tired of that, Which and here's a new tax increase to go along with it. And that was passed, and uh, that's now being incorporated. Uh, there were some issues that were flawed in it, and so the legislature wisely said, let's make those modifications that we need to. Let's see if we can get the waivers that the Trump-Pence uh, administration had told us they, w- they would do. They didn't come through with all of those issues like we thought and what they actually said to us. So those modifications are okay, and I think the legislature acted appropriately under the circumstances there. The medical cannabis, for example, is one that uh, uh, I think we were a little slow to come to terms with. A lot of people were slow to come to terms with, but the people then had the initiative of medical cannabis. But again, the initiative was flawed. Keep in mind, initiatives are not a good way to make law because whatever you vote on up or down, uh, if you vote it into statute, that becomes the law, warts and all. When you go through a legislative process, you have an idea, you have a baseline proposed legislation, you modify it, you improve it, you amend it, go through a public comment period, and you can and refine it so that once it comes out and is signed into law, you have a refined le- a piece of legislation. That doesn't happen with initiatives. And there were some problems, and those involved in the medical cannabis um, uh, effort came and worked with the legislature and us, our uh, governor's office, and said, we know there's needs to make some fixes here. Let's work together, which we did. And not all everybody agrees, but never not everybody agreed with the original initiative either. But uh, we came together 
and had a compromise made and found common ground, and we have a better law in place on medical cannabis because the legislature did what they do, and that's to refine the law. So I think, you know, we kind of had a unique time with all these initiatives flying around. Uh, the uh, the boundary, uh, uh, Fair Boundaries Commission, that's another one. But now they've come together, the Boundaries Commission, working with the legislature, recognizing we know our initiative has got flaws in it. It's got to pass constitutional muster, et cetera, et cetera. And they've worked together over these last number of weeks. And as of yesterday, have come together on a, on a compromise that everybody agrees with. It's win-win. So I think it's hard to find fault with the legislature doing what they're supposed to do and really reflecting the will of the people, all of the people. And uh, so I, I think they've done a pretty good job and, and maybe a little slow to come to the table on a couple of things. But uh, the end result is what you need to worry about. And I think the end results we've got on all of these are actually a net positive. Governor, we have another call waiting on the line right now. This is Lou in Draper, Utah. Lou, go ahead. Governor, you've done a fabulous job. I'm very impressed. Well, thank you. We have lived here for 30 years, and the problem that I see constantly is that I think there should be some housekeeping done with UDOT. I think their salaries are way over what they should be, plus for the job they did. They do things after the fact. For instance, Bangor should have been a freeway, as that part of the valley was growing so fast. We've seen the constant construction on I-15 between Salt Lake and Provo. And now the county approved this development out east, uh, west, excuse me, that doesn't even affect me. But who should be the first ones in there working with the planner? UDOT, because they wait until it's a traffic mess, and then they fix things after the fact. I don't get it. (laughs) Well, you have shared the frustration of a lot of people Uh, It's a little more complex, uh, and uh, I'll just explain quickly that we have three categories of roads. There's uh, state roads, and then we have B and C roads, which are counties and cities. And they hope that they all work together in concert, and so we have a system that, in fact, is effective in allowing us to get from point A to point B. We compound that now by having a need for more mass transit, our heavy rail, light rail, bus rapid transit, and we have, you know, air travel, too. So all of that really kind of fits under UDOT's overall responsibility, but a lot of that's controlled by other entities. Also, it's easy to, to kind of look in hindsight at what should have happened with Bangor, but it's, a, it's hard to look around the corners and, and to kind of view the future. Uh, I can tell you we've done a, a deep-dive analysis of our transportation system and what it needs to be over the next 50 years. We call it infrastructure, and that also includes water. Uh, we do pay based on market. Uh, so if you're an engineer uh, and have experience in, as a civil engineer, the, the pay that we give to those folks is, in fact, commensurate with the market uh, in the private sector. So I don't know that they're overpaid. We have a lot of them that have to a lot of work. We spend a lot of money in transportation, when I came into office, we we're spending about $65 million a year and behind the curve in what's become now over the last decade the fastest-growing state in America. And now we're spending about seven to $900 million a year, and we're still behind the curve when it comes to capacity and maintenance, not only the maintenance of our roads but our overpasses, et cetera. We actually are on cutting edge on many things, uh, moving, uh, creating uh, overpasses on-site, without disrupting the traffic, and then move them into place within 24 hours. We have people come from all over the world 
to see the UDOT action here, uniquely so in the state of Utah. So we're doing some things very well. We also have what's called a success program with all of our agencies where we are reviewing to see what we can do in UDOT to be more efficient, to get better bang for the taxpayers' dollars. For example, we've perfected design build as opposed to just traditional bidding of contracts. We can save time and money, uh, have more flexibility. Uh, we are having uh, uh, you know, a review of all of what we're doing to make sure that we can find a better way to do things. And frankly, the overall result of that is that we have fewer state employees and government is labor intensive. That's all. We, we don't make anything. We just provide service. So we have fewer state employees today. You'd be pleased to hear than we had back in 2002. You have to go to 2001 to find a smaller number, which has now saved the taxpayers in this last decade about $2 billion and growing. It's about $500 million now a year compounding. So... Um, you know, with the congestion, with the highways, with the growth, I mean, it's a complex issue. But believe me, it's top of mind to see what can we do to be more effective, more efficient. And we spend a lot of money in roads. And so we're looking to find ways to save money there. It really is a first order. Before we take a break in just a moment, let's go to Scott, who's on the line in Goshen, Utah. Scott, go ahead with your question for Governor Herbert. Hello, Governor. Thank you so much for taking my question. I know that your time and everybody else is involved in the show is valuable, so I will be as quick as possible. Um, If the reports are correct that I have seen, it looks like Utah County has become a uh, Second Amendment sanctuary county, and I want to know what your thoughts are on that and your overall thoughts on the importance or lack of importance of the Second Amendment overall. Well, number one, I'm a strong Second Amendment supporter. Uh, I also believe that it's a state responsibility on putting parameters around the Second Amendment. That's been tested all the way to the Supreme Court. And so states have different laws. Uh, I was just with the NRA folks here just a couple of weeks ago, and I know they rated us the second best state in America when it comes to defending Second Amendment rights. So we use some common sense, and I think we're we're pretty strong in that regard doesn't mean we can't make some improvements here or there. So I don't know what Utah County is that you're saying that they've become a sanctuary county. That would be news to me. And I don't know what it is that they've done that would cause you to think that. Can you tell me? Um, Just some reports on social media from groups that have been spending some time at the Capitol, like, for example, uh, Utah Gun Exchange. Okay. I'll have to look into it. I'm happy to look into it. I've heard some criticism of Salt Lake City or Salt Lake County, not Utah County, but Salt Lake County, that's wanting to put some parameters uh, around uh, background checks for any gun shows that occur in the county facilities that they own. And uh, that's, again, my concern there is that we have a county that has a different set of rules than other counties. And I think it's a state responsibility. It should be uniform. You can imagine if every city and every county in Utah had a different set of rules on what you can do regarding Second Amendment rights, it'd be pretty confusing. So I've heard something about Salt Lake County. I have not heard anything about Utah County, but it's something that I will look into. Let's take a brief break, and we'll come right back and continue. Let me speak to the governor with Governor Gary Herbert. When we come back, we'll have about 10 minutes to go. So uh, the phone lines are open. We do have lines available for you at area code 801-575-8255, 575-8255. 
And uh, also we have a few texts that have come in that we'll share with the governor coming up. Stay with us here at KSL. What's your question for Governor Herbert? Call 801-575-8255. This is Let Me Speak to the Governor. So good to have you along. Let me speak to the governor, an opportunity for everyone here in the state of Utah to call in and have a chance to talk with Governor Gary Herbert. If I might, uh, Governor, we had uh, former state uh, senator Scott Howell who sent in a text and asked if you support House Bill 394 that would change some things regarding homelessness and its uh, representative Kim Coleman's bill. Um, if, if I re- recollect correctly, that bill probably is what people refer to as creating a homeless czar, putting somebody in charge of homelessness and kind of a, a central figure. Uh, it has some merit, the concept, uh, but I've talked to some of those involved in the homes issue, long-term advocates, and they have raised some concerns. So we're in the process of kind of monitoring that, whether we'll support it or not, I guess remains to be seen. What I do support is efforts to, in fact, reduce homelessness. We're doing a good job. We've got three new adult resource centers that are now online. We have one for young people. Um, I know the Pamela Atkinson uh, uh, Homeless Foundation. Uh, again, you can check that off in your income tax coming up there. And she's asking everybody to donate two bucks. Right. You know, so we can all do that. That helps with homelessness. Affordable housing is a part of this uh, issue, which. I'm going to bring together the stakeholders, which would be like the League of Cities and Towns, the Association of Counties, home builders, realtors, developers, and say, why is it we're not getting that niche in the marketplace of affordable housing filled? There's certainly a demand out there. What's stopping? Is it zoning? Is it building codes? Is it the lack of a number of builders? Uh, you know, and what can we do to encourage more affordable housing? So there's a lot of component parts of this. Uh, the good news is our our homelessness has gone down about 2.5% this past year, and uh, that's a good trend in the right direction. Uh, we want to make sure that we know why people are homeless, uh, that they choose to be homeless. Some do. Uh, maybe it's, does, it puzzles me why, yeah. but we see people out there camping that rather than just go to a homeless shelter, which they have room in the end to take care of them, they all pitch a tent. And so we, if we have mental health issues, let's make sure we treat the mental health. If we have sub, substance abuse issues, let's treat that. And um, I think we're moving in a good direction. And I'll take a hard look at the bill for Scott. And um, and uh, but, but top of mind right now is this homeless issue, which we see across the country going out of just out of uh, control. You know, you look at what's right. happened in San Francisco, L.A. and other major cities. We look pretty good here in Utah compared to them. We, uh, you, uh, put uh, your folks to work on the question that we got from Goshen, Utah, about the sanctuary county of oh, uh, yeah. Utah County, and it ended up being a resolution. Maybe you could explain that to well, us. Well, it's a resolution. I think what they're saying, we're not going to use any public monies to, in fact, uh, thwart the ability for you to have your Second Amendment rights protected. And it's kind of, I think it's maybe, and I, I don't want to speak for them, they need to speak for themselves, but maybe a pushback for what they saw Salt Lake County doing, saying we're going to require some things that are over and above the state law on background checks on facilities that we own. We're going to use uh, taxpayer money to enforce background checks that are maybe a little more expansive than mm-hmm. what the current law is. So I don't know. It's always an ongoing discussion on Second Amendments. We all, uh, you know, I believe there's a common sense approach to, with our gun rights, and we want to protect them. And 
and we want to make sure that we are being responsible citizens. Let's take a phone call from Deborah, who's on the line in Salt Lake City. Deborah, your question for the governor. Uh, my question is, is I've lived in Utah my entire life. You know, all I ever hear is we don't have enough money to do the roads, do the bridges. You know, we've got state tax on food, state tax on our check. Why is it that we cannot put a lottery in place in Utah like Idaho, where we've already, we hear it every year, millions of our dollars go to Idaho to support their lottery. I lived in Florida for four years, never seen anything run so smooth because their lottery paid for all their street repairs. They paid for the sales tax on food. They paid for the state tax. Do you feel that the church has got their hand too far in the pockets in the state of Utah? Well, I think certainly the culture of Utah is reflected by the religious aspects of our state, and that's not just those that belong to the LDS faith, but Catholic, Protestants, those that are non-Christian. There certainly is a culture here that uh, permeates everything we do. And uh, But that being said, we're one of only two states that don't have gambling. Hawaii is another one. And... Uh, so introducing the lottery opens up the ability for us to have casinos. Uh, I know some of our reservations, Native American reservations, uh, would probably want to put casinos on their reservations if that was an opportunity. Uh, the fact we don't have any form of gambling precludes that. I've talked with a number of states that have uh, gambling. Uh, it's not the panacea, at least in their mind, that some would think it to be. Uh, you might have some additional revenue that comes in from gambling and the tax on that effort. But it also creates some other issues and uh, the cost money. And uh, some of those that are most harmed by this are those who are lower-income people hoping to get the jackpot and yet lose the mortgage on their house. So there's a pros and cons. This is not a black-and-white issue. I don't see the culture changing uh, and... Um, uh, so I don't know that there's going to be an interest in opening up uh, to gambling lotteries, parimutuel betting, because it opens up the whole opportunity to have gambling in the state, which I think most people in Utah would not like to have. We only have a couple of minutes left, but I want to sneak in Howard's uh, question from Springville, Utah. Howard, go ahead with the governor. Hi, thanks, Doug. Hey, Governor, my wife thinks you were brilliant and the best governor we've ever had. And well, I that's because you're from Springville. That's where my wife's from, so that's <laughs> that's why. Hey, in the nature of full disclosure, I'm a faculty member at Utah Valley University, and I want to ask you about the spending inequity in the state with higher education. Um, you've used the largest school in the state, um, or largest university in the state, and yet their spending per student is significantly less, or funding per student from the state is significantly less, and the faculty at UVU make 20 to 30 percent less overall than the rest of the schools of higher education in the in the state. And I'm wondering, is there anything going on to bring some equity or equitability into that? Well, it's a debate all the time of how much money do we give to higher education. We certainly don't give as much to higher education as we do public education. Under the Constitution, we're required to provide a public education system. We're not required to do higher education. All universities are not necessarily created equal, meaning they have different missions. Uh, we have research institutions. Uh, Utah Valley is kind of new to the university status, uh, coming from a junior community college and before that a technical vocational institution. So it's evolving. 
Uh, your board of trustees, uh, President Taminas, is doing a great job, and they'll probably have to make those determinations as far as you know, how much money do we spend on salaries. I think they're growing and increasing. Uh, there's been a lot of money. In fact, we've had complaints that Utah Valley University has been treated as a special golden child because of all the new buildings that have been built in there, which cost a lot of money, and more yet to come. So um, it's probably a balancing act uh, as far as, you know, uh, what is the right amount. And and I can tell you other university presidents would, would say, well, we're not getting our fair share either. And uh, or the University of Utah is getting it all. And the University of Utah would say, well, we're not getting it all. In fact, we're dividing the pie unequally to those lesser, smaller institutions. So it's an ongoing debate. Uh, the legislature tries to weigh in and do fair um, your board of trustees, though, at the local institution, uh, they have control of the budget and what, or how it's being spent. And, of course, President Timinas now is leading in, I think, a great uh, way. And, by the way, thank you for your service there at Utah Valley University because it is the largest university now with most students. And, by golly, it is a great institution. It's a, such a wonderful compliment to what we have going. So I think you're moving in the right direction, so keep it up. Governor, we are out of time. You're going to be sad to know that all my questions regarding Eureka, Utah, and the Tinnix <laughs> Mining District are, are on the back burner. Well, I, we'll save that for the next time. That's I'll be next back next time, month. The whole show. Yeah. Governor, thank you so much thank for joining you. Great us. Great to be with you. Great to be with the people of Utah. Let me speak to the governor here at KSL News Radio, where it is 1 o'clock.